Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35. Jacob was told to go to Bethel and worship God there where he once had. God told him that in chapter 31 when Jacob was up in uh, Paddan Aram in the Syrian region of uh, where Laban had lived. And so Jacob partially obeyed. He left Laban's land with all of his family and all of his possessions. But before coming to Bethel, a few things took place. First, he ran into Esau somewhere around Peniel. Um, you remember where Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. Uh, shortly after that, Esau arrives with his 400 men and, and uh, Jacob thinks Esau is going to kill him. Uh, they end up parting in peace. Esau heads south back home and Jacob heads west to Sukkoth and and he's heading actually towards Bethel, but he doesn't make it all the way there. Instead, he stops about 20 miles north of Bethel in a place called Shechem. And so that's the second thing that happens on his journey back to this place where God had told him to go. And he settles there. We know that because he buys a piece of land and his daughter Dinah, uh, over probably after several years, um, decides she wants to go and mingle with some pagan women. We saw this last week in chapter 34, and, and as a result, one of the leading men of the, the, the city, Shechem, by the name of Shechem also, rapes her. And, um, and this, this happened, I believe, because Jacob did not fully obey God. If he had fully obeyed God, gone all the way to Bethel, this could have been avoided. This would have been avoided. Instead, he stayed there for some 10 to 20 years in a place uh, that was filled with people who hated God. And um, Jacob began interacting with them, um, doing commerce with them, and certainly they were interested in, in, in intermingling with them, intermarrying with Jacob's people. The result of this this rape was that her two brothers, two of her blood brothers, um, decided that they were going to take vengeance into their own hands, take the law into their hands, and so they killed all the men of the city of Shechem. And uh, through it all, we see Jacob as a very passive character, don't we? He doesn't say a word when he finds out about it. He doesn't tell any of his sons. He doesn't stand up for his daughter when he has a an opportunity to confront these wicked people. Instead of standing up for her, he says nothing. And uh, even while she is imprisoned in Shechem's house, Jacob says nothing about his daughter or the sinfulness of this act. And and he doesn't stop his sons from from doing a disastrous act, which is telling the people of Shechem to be circumcised. They are defaming the covenant that was designed to set people apart to God. And they're setting them apart for murder is what they're doing. And Jacob does nothing. And afterwards, we find out at the end of chapter 34 that Jacob's biggest concern is not the sin. He's concerned about his position among these wicked people. How they're going to treat him now how they were going to threaten his safety. I mean, what a disaster we have in the life of Jacob. In chapter 35, there are several more things that take place. Three, namely, God reminds 
Jacob of his commitment to go to Bethel. You need to get up and go, Jacob. It's time to go. Then secondly, we're going to see that that um, Reuben commits a sin, the sin of incest, Jacob's oldest son. And then we also have some records of some deaths. And yet through it all, what we're going to find is that God is faithful. That despite these forgotten vows by Jacob and his family, despite the wicked sins of Reuben, despite all the death and the, the changing of, the, of an era, God still remains faithful. He still remembers them. He shines His favor upon them. He, he continually guides them and corrects them. And He never, never gives up on them. Amazing God we serve. Let's read this passage, Genesis chapter 35. I'll begin in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. He built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed Himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the oak. It was named Alan Bakuth. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram, and he blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I, have, I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you. And I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up an altar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. And when she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni. But her father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. It came about while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went in and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now there were twelve sons of Jacob, sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. 
Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Despite forgotten vows, wicked sin, and the death of several people, God is still faithful. God continues to bless His people. That's the way God is. So let's look at this first part, and that is that God continues to bless His people despite their forgotten vows. God had told Jacob in chapter 31, go to Bethel. Go there. And Jacob forgets about it, and he spends all this time in Shechem. And God reminds him in verse 1, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God. This is where I once met you. This is where you you had this this uh, vision of me in a dream and where I blessed you. I want you to go back to that place. We sometimes forget our commitments to God. Jacob had been fearful, really, of... Uh, Remember at the end of chapter 34, actually look at verse 30 with me. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi after this mass, this massacre, mass murder, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed. Jacob's fear because of the sin is that he is going to be destroyed. But God reassures him. And, and what's interesting about God's reassurance in verse 1 is He doesn't come down and, and pat Jacob on the shoulder say, it's okay. He doesn't send him a whole slew of, of soldiers. Like, here's an army. This is going to help protect you. He doesn't send him a big bag of money or a large flock of sheep. But instead, how does God reassure Jacob? It is with His voice with his voice, with a reminder for Jacob to obey him. And and what I'm saying to you is, if you, Christian, are distressed right now, if you are discomforted, then the comfort that you will receive from God will not come necessarily with, with new things or lots of physical or financial prosperity. But God will comfort you with His voice. You see, believers are comforted when God speaks. And that's why we spend so much time listening to God speak. That's how we are comforted when God speaks to us. This is how He comforts Jacob. In fact, in verse 5, God shows His protection over Jacob. He, he shows His blessing of protection. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them. And they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. In chapter 34, verse 30, Jacob's expecting this will arouse their anger. This sin of mass murder will arouse their anger. And instead, what does it do? God causes it to put terror on the cities so that they're afraid of Jacob. And as God tells him to go back in verse 1, Jacob responds with consecration. That is, I'm going to set myself apart for the purpose of worshiping God. 
Okay, I'm going to Bethel and God wants me to worship him there, so what do I need to do to set myself apart? Notice verse 2. Jacob says to his household and all who are with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. God comes to remind Jacob of his forgotten vow and to assure him that he is with him. And Jacob gets the point. He says, you know what? God is right. I need to go and worship God at Bethel. But before I do that, I need to consecrate myself. And Do you remember what the name Bethel means? What does it mean? House of God, right? So this is a place where Jacob recognizes there's going to be worship here. This is the place where I met with God. In order to worship God properly, Jacob was saying to his family, we need to put away these false idols, these foreign gods. Rachel probably still had her father's, Laban's idols. Remember, she stole them from her father. Rachel probably still had them. And what Jacob is is recognizing is that God demands exclusive worship. You can't just put me up on a shelf with all of your other idols that you worship and expect me to be okay with that. They all may be okay with that, but I'm not. I am God, and I am God alone, and I must be worshipped exclusively. I will not share my glory with another, Isaiah says. And yet, uh, God still blesses Jacob despite his forgotten vow. And He blesses him by, by meeting with him. And He does this here once Jacob arrives in Bethel. God protects Jacob. Um, Look at verse 4 just to see what Jacob does with these foreign gods. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. We're not going to make this a part of who we are and what we do as a family anymore. We're going to do away with them. So Jacob hides them from his family and moves on to Bethel. And God protects them. He, we, we really have nothing to fear when God is our, on our side, do we? We see this over and over again. And when God is on our side, that the fears that Jacob has here in chapter 34, verse 30, we can understand them. We can appreciate them because we've been there. That is, we've seen God work over and over again in our lives, and yet we still have this next thing that's going to potentially shake up everything in our lives. It's going to mess everything up and so we're scared about taking that next step. But we really have nothing to fear because God is with us. And we see this throughout Scripture. Joseph, when he was sold into slavery, it looked like his brothers were an obstacle to what God wanted to do. And yet, Joseph says that it was actually God who sent me here. Don't worry about it, brothers. It's fine. Because God was actually the one who's sending me here so that I could be an instrument in His hands to save many people from this famine that would come. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Chapter 50, verse 20. The people of Israel seem to have these obstacles as well. At every turn, from getting to the Promised Land, first is Egypt. They're stuck in slavery. 
then it's just this wandering around in the wilderness. It seems like it's never going to end, but, but it was God who led them all the way. And when they finally have to conquer all these cities to uh, by a group of people who are probably not very good with the sword, they're probably not very skilled militarily. And so they have to go up against all these these great cities, including the, the most fortified of them, Jericho. And at the end, this is Joshua's assessment. Chapter 21, verse 44 through 45, And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that He had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies to their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. And Jesus seemed to have some obstacles to becoming or, or reigning as Messiah, as King. It looked like the Jews stood in His way to the point where they even killed the potential King. But in fact, we find out in Acts chapter 2 that it was God who led Him to the cross. It was Isaiah 53.10. It was God who crushed Him. And so, here's... Here's the point for us. Whatever obstacle it is that seems like it's in the way of you being able to do what God wants you to do, that God ultimately is in it and we have nothing to fear. He will overcome that obstacle if that is ultimately what He wants for you. Jacob completes his vow in verses 6 and 7. He didn't obey immediately. We saw that. God had to remind him, but he did obey finally. Verse 6, So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him, he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed Himself to him when he fled from his brother. El Bethel, El, the word El is short for Elohim, which refers to God. So if... Bethel means house of God, then El Bethel means God, the God of Bethel. God, the God of the house of God. It sounds kind of redundant, but the point there is that Jacob is recognizing that this is a special place where God will meet him. And in verses 9-13, through 13, God blesses him. God had been the God of Abraham. Jacob has probably heard of that. God had been the God of Isaac, and certainly Isaac would have told him about that. And we've seen before where God's given Jacob his blessing through Isaac, but now it's from God directly. Jacob, all of these promises that I gave to your grandfather Abraham, I'm now giving directly to you. Verses 9-13. And again, he reminds him of his changed name. This was we Remember, this happened before in Bethel. Um... And he called him Israel, which means God, may God contend for His people. Verse 11, God says, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and companies shall come from you. And kings will come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham, I'll give it to you. And I'll give the land to your descendants. So, so both kings and land will be yours. And so God reminds him of His promises to his father and his grandfather. And this is such a stark event in the life of Jacob that he memorializes it again with a pillar in verses 14 and 15. 
It says he set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, that is God, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. And Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel, house of God. So despite our forgotten vows, God still blesses His people. God still blesses His people, but He also blesses His people despite their sin. Let's skip down to verse 21. Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it came about while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Tower of Eder is, uh, literally means tower of flock. It's probably a tower that was set up around an area where, where shepherds would, would care for their sheep. And the tower was designed for there to be people looking out and watching against any thieves that may come and steal their sheep. And so it would, it would um, probably deflect thieves from coming that way when they would see a tower and, and a lookout and so on. Apparently they come to this place and the Scriptures say that when he, they come to this place, this is where Reuben commits this sin of incest with Jacob's wife Bilhah. And this is a serious sin. This would not be forgotten. Jacob would remember this, although he, there's no mention of him doing anything here. When it comes time for Jacob to bless his sons, the blessing, by the way, has to do with the line of the kings. Who is it that's going to, to, to have kings born from them? Specifically, the King of Kings, the Messiah. And the answer is, is going to be Judah, but, but normally it goes to the firstborn. Normally it goes to the firstborn. Remember, Jacob stole that away from, from Esau. It was supposed to go to Esau, but Jacob got in there and he had the, the fake skin on, remember? And he stands before Isaac and uh, towards the end of his days, apparently, Isaac, Isaac's eyes were weak and he came and felt him and smelt him and, and he said, yes, this is my son Esau. And so he, he blesses him, but he turns out he's blessing Jacob. Jacob now is the one who's going to be the, the ancestor of the Messiah. That's the blessing. And that could have gone through Reuben. But Reuben commits this sin. In fact, in chapter 49, let's turn there. 49, I'll just show you um, that Reuben is passed over because of this sin. In fact, Simeon and Levi are passed over as well because of their violence in chapter 34. They would have been the next in line following Reuben. They're passed over as well. And it goes down to Judah, who's not innocent either. We're going to learn about him in a couple chapters as well where he commits a wicked uh, act of, a, of uh, a fornication and yet God still allows the, the kings to be born through him. Chapter 49, verse 3. Jacob says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. And then notice, uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Then notice, it would have gone to Simeon and Levi, the next two, the second and third born. Simeon and Levi are brothers, verse 5. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let my glory be united with their assembly. 
because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So because of this sin, Reuben is passed over for the blessing. And what is amazing about this reprehensible sin is God's mercy in all of it. That God doesn't respond to Reuben's sin by saying, you know what? I've seen enough. Jacob, your family is full of wickedness. Time after time, I keep blessing you. I keep showing mercy to you. And yet you keep defiling my covenant and you keep disobeying me. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm done with you and your family. But God doesn't do that. Because God is faithful to His promise. God is faithful to His people. So we see God's continual blessing even despite the wicked sins. And then we also see God's blessing even in the face of death. And that's the final, third and final point. God blesses His people even in the face of death. And there's three deaths listed here in chapter 35. Let's just look at each one of them. First, verse 8, the death of Deborah. Deborah's only been mentioned one other time. Genesis chapter 24, verse 59, she is the nurse of Rebekah, Isaac's wife. So this is Jacob's mother's nurse. And um, we're not sure exactly how, um, I'm not sure exactly how Deborah ends up with Jacob's company. It could be, some people think, that remember Rachel, or uh, uh, Rebekah, when Jacob left, told Jacob to go to Paddan Aram back to her hometown and find a wife there. She said, Stay up there until Esau's wrath has subsided. And at that point, I'm going to send for you to come back home. Right? Well, we have no record that she ever did that. So some people think that Deborah was actually part of the group, maybe there were several people, that went up to there to to bring Jacob back home. There's no indication in the text. So I actually take it that Deborah actually became attached to Jacob because she was the nurse of Rebekah. That is, she helped care for Jacob as a young boy and saw him grow up and perhaps uh, was a very integral part of his life. And so she decided, you know what, Rebecca, you know, you have plenty of servants here with, with Isaac. Why don't I head out with Jacob? He doesn't really have a whole lot. And so that's very likely what happened. But the text records this um, probably simply to, re- to help us to see, we'll see this with the next two people who die, that the kind of a passing on of a new era, or a passing on to a new era, that is. That with the death of all these people who once were at the center of what God is doing, we see this new era coming. So, uh, certainly we see this in verses 16-20 through 20 with the death of Jacob's wife, Rachel, his beloved Rachel. Um, she dies from complications in her, pregnant, in her delivery, excuse me, Verse 16, then they journeyed from Bethel. And when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, Rachel began to give birth and she suffered severe labor. And when she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. That came about as her soul was departing, for she died. And she named him Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Rachel... 
dies of complications here, and they bury her in Bethlehem. What a devastating blow this must have been to Jacob to lose his favorite wife, the one for whom he worked 14 years. Remember, the first seven years, he thought he was working for Rachel. He got tricked by Laban and had to work for Rachel for another seven years. And uh, he, he, he loved her very much, and she is the first to die. Not only Deborah and Rachel, but also Isaac, verses 27 through 29, dies. Jacob came to his father Isaac. So this is after Bethel. Jacob heads all the way down to Hebron, which is where he had originally left. Isaac is there. says he's at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Isaac dies at the age of 180, which would make Jacob and Esau about 120 years old. This is an amazing testament to God's mercy because you remember when Jacob had left, Jacob was 73 years old. And at that time, Isaac gave the blessing. Why? Why did he do it at that time? He thought he was going to die, right? He said, I'm going to be passed on to the place of my fathers. That's code for I'm going to go to the graves where my fathers are right now. And uh, so 43 years, Isaac still has life. He thought he was going to die. Jacob's gone for 20 years up in Paddan Aram. Then he heads back down and hangs out in Shechem apparently for a long time. And then to Bethel, that's another 23 years. And all in total, 43 years before Isaac finally dies. Jacob's able to see him, uh, and he's able to, with his brother, bury him uh, to, to bury their father. It must have been awkward for Jacob because the last time that he had any interaction with Esau, I remember, was near Peniel, and he told Esau, What? I'm coming with you. I'm right behind you, right? We're going to be a little slow, but we're on our way. And Esau comes back at hearing of the death of his father and buries his father with Jacob. And so even in the face of death, God blesses His people. And the reason I know that God blesses His people in the, even in the face of death is for two specific reasons. First, is the birth of Benjamin, verse 18. As Rachel is dying, she names him Ben-Oni, Ben-Oni, which means it actually can have two meanings. It can either mean son of my strength or son of my sorrow. And so you can imagine that if anyone who knew that Benjamin was born while his mother died during his delivery, that they would think Ben-Oni, son of my, not strength, they would think, think of the second meaning, which is son of my sorrow. So what Jacob did is he... He made the name very similar to Ben-Oni. He changed it to Ben-Hamin, Benjamin, which takes the positive, uh, the positive look at this young boy. And that is son of my strength. Benjamin means son of my right hand, which has to do with strength and power. So it's a very similar name, but it, but it focuses on the, the positive part of the, of the meaning, not on the negative part. So... Um, 
so fathers don't necessarily take this as proof text why you get the final say in naming your children. That's not what's going on here. Okay. Uh, so God blesses His people even in the face of death. He blesses them by by giving this this gift. This is a gift. Benjamin, remember Rachel was really desiring, desperately desiring to have these sons for Jacob, and she she's able to have one even on her deathbed. And then also in verses 22, the end of 22 through uh, 26, we have the listing of Jacob's sons. And this, I think, is to remind us that God has blessed Jacob with these sons. Verse 22 at the end, now there were 12 sons of Jacob. And then he lists them. Notice how he lists them. He lists them uh, in groups with their mother. So instead of just listing them, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, instead what he does is he says, here's six for Leah. And here's the ones for Bilhah and Zilpah and two for Rachel. What that could indicate, and we don't want to try to read too much into the text, but it could indicate that there's probably some division among the among the different uh, children groups because they had different mothers. They, they bond in a, in a special way. And, uh, but, but the point, I think, here is that God blesses His people that, that even though we have this death and the passing out of generation, we, we really have a handing of the baton now from from one era of God's people to another era. Now, now we're going to start to focus. In fact, starting in chapter 37, the focus is not going to be so much on Jacob. In fact, after 36, we're not going to hear anything about Esau. But it's going to be focused on Jacob's sons. And um, so God's continuing to bless His people through a next generation of, of people whom he, he, whom he is blessing. And so God blesses His people despite forgotten vows, sin, and death. One of the key points here, specifically in verse 1, is that God doesn't give up on His people. God never gives up on you. Think with me or, or, or think on your own, I should say, of the lowest time that you've ever had in your life spiritually. Perhaps it was before you came to Christ. Perhaps it was after you came to Christ. Think of the lowest time that you've ever had in your life spiritually. Where was God in all that? Did God forget you? Had God abandoned you? Okay, now think with me with from that time, that lowest part time in your life spiritually to today. You see the spiritual fruit that God's born in your life? You see how far God has brought you? See, God never gave up on you. God continued to pursue you, and that's because that's the type of God we serve. Hebrews 13.5 says He will never desert you or forsake you. He's not going to do it. I love this passage in 2 Timothy 2. Verses 11-13, Paul says it is a trustworthy statement. If we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. But notice this phrase, if we are faithless, 
He remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself. God cannot deny Himself and so He will remain faithful to His people. He's not going to give up on you. So what should our response be to God's faithfulness? What should our response be? If God's always going to be faithful no matter what we're like, no matter our forgotten vows or sin or the death that that happens all around us, if God's going to continually be faithful, then should should we abound in sin so that grace will increase? Paul asked that question in Romans chapter 6. Should we do that? And he says, of course not. No, may it never be. That's not the point. Our response to God's faithfulness should be one of commitment and with like with Jacob, consecration. That God, I'm going to give you exclusive worship in my life. It should be a heart of thanksgiving for God's mercy and His grace. That despite our sin, He still is faithful to us. So because He's faithful, I'm going to give myself to Him. Complacency often creeps in, in as, as Christians even. And it often creeps in because we think we have earned God's grace. That we've done enough to have God pour out His grace on us. And as Pastor Doran challenged us on Wednesday, we get intoxicated with our own success and our own personal fulfillment. We subtly begin to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We think that everything in life exists for us. That is our family. They exist to serve our needs, to serve our every need and desire. We think our job exists for us. Our country exists for us. Our church exists for us. And even God. God, You exist for me. You exist to serve me, to give me what I want. And when we think that way, we become more and more complacent with our life. We we take on an entitlement mentality that I deserve to be treated in a certain way. Christ said, if you want to be great, then you better be be prepared to be slave of all. You better recognize that you are not the master even of your own life. But you are a servant like your Savior Our response to God's faithfulness should not be complacency. When we understand God's faithfulness correctly, then it should result in a renewed faith, a resolve to to follow through on our commitments to God and others. It should be a placing of our interests and needs below other people's. That we're going to place their needs above ours. It should also be like Jacob in chapter 35 to purify ourselves before we worship God. I want to park on this one just for a minute because I think this is important because we can be complacent even when it comes to worshiping God. As we just think it's another thing that we do. But we have to be careful. When Jacob was preparing to worship before God, he was reckoning, I'm going to meet God face to face here. We need to purify ourselves. We need to get rid of the idols. I don't suppose there are idols, physical idols that you have to get rid of before you come to church on Sunday to worship God, but 
But we often come to worship with a wrong attitude. And that is, God, what do you have for me today? What are you going to do for me? Will you give me a pat on the back for all the hard struggles that I've had to endure this week for you? Will you give me some public recognition? Will you allow my favorite song to be sung? Will you send someone to to just give me a little bit of praise? I love it when people praise me. So, will it be maybe some money? God, when I come to worship You, what do You have for me? What are You going to do for me? I'm happy to go as long as you got something for me. Could you imagine if we stood before a king in that way? If we walked into the presence of a king, an earthly king, with the attitude, what do you got for me? What do you suppose he would do to us? Get out of here. I don't need you. Thankfully, God is not that way. But how we should come before a king is what is it that I can offer to you, O king? I am lowly. I don't even deserve to be in your presence, but I'm here and I'm happy to give you whatever I can. What is it that I can offer you? Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your kingdom. And when we come into the presence of God for worship, We should be asking ourselves, what do I have for God? What do I have to offer God? What has God given me? I I don't, you know, obviously I'm not saying here that we, we, our works are going to be enough to satisfy God's wrath or anything like that. Obviously it's, you know, like the song says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. But what I'm talking about is as Christians, God has gifted us with certain resources, money, talents, abilities. And how are we going to use those? Because He is the King. What does God require of me as I stand before Him? How does He want to be worshipped? Not How do I feel when I step out of His palace? When I step out of His presence, I hope I feel really good. No, how does God feel when I step out of His palace? What does God expect of me? And Micah 6.8 tells us, He has told you what He desires of you. To act humbly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What God wants is what He wanted of Jacob. That is, He wanted His heart engaged in His worship. He wants our hearts engaged in our worship. He wants us to love Him with all of our heart. He wants us to love Him for Him and not just for His gifts. He wants us to put aside the rituals, the ritualistic mindset that if I just do another thing, another another sacrifice, another offering, then God's going to bless me. Put all that aside and come with all your things and, and, and do it with thanksgiving and joy because you love Him and you're amazed at His mercy. He wants you to worship Him with your whole person. He wants me to worship that way. We have times in our lives when we are extremely zealous for God, but soon that gets exchanged for complacent disobedience. 
just becomes another thing in life. Just becomes another idol on the shelf. Are there any commitments that you once made to God that you haven't fulfilled? Are there any commitments to other people that you just put on the shelf and say, you know what? No. I might have said that at one time, but I'm not going to do that. If we are spiritually complacent, if we are like Jacob and and don't fully obey God, if we only partially obey Him, it will lead to a complacent lifestyle. And complacency leads to self-exaltation, that we are at the center of our own universe. But when we actually follow through on our commitments to God, then it leads to praise of Him for His mercies and giving us the resources that we needed to follow through on our vows. Thank You, God, for for leading me all the way. I recognize that I strayed from You at times, but You kept pursuing me and You wanted to see me follow through on those vows. So I'm going to do it. And now that I've done it, I see Your grace in all of it. So I said, don't... I say, don't delay in your spiritual commitments. And remember that God will never give up on you, believer. Despite your sin, He is there reminding you of His love and His faithfulness by His Word and pushing you to follow on and continue and follow through with the commitments that you have made. And in the end, you're going to look back And despite all the times in which you took an off-ramp, when you sinned, when you had to face death in your family or or an extended family or friends, you're able to look back on all that and say, you know what? God led me all the way. That was all of God. And I can praise Him for that. Let's pray. Father, again, we are humbled by the uh, example of Jacob and how You show Your grace to even a, uh, a passive and often complacent man such as he. Certainly there were great times of spiritual renewal and spiritual strength in the life of Jacob. We don't want to minimize those at all. But we certainly do see ourselves in him and see how often we, we drift and we do sin and become complacent and disobey You because we see obstacles ahead and we don't really think that Your way is the best. And so we try our own way and we fail. And we finally come around. We see that, that it was You that was allowing us to see the, the fruit of our own sin. And You're doing it so that we would be pointed back to You. And through it all, You pursue us. You don't give up on us. And we're amazed at Your mercy. And we want to see You and Your hand continue to guide us. We don't want to have times of spiritual drifting. We don't want to go back to where we once were. We want to move forward. We want to be more holy. We want Christ to be seen in us. We want Christ to change us. We want the Spirit to guide us. We want to be at the center of what You are doing in this world. And in order for that to happen, we have to submit ourselves to You. We have to to give ourselves wholly to You. We have to be willing to hold nothing back. 
We have to consecrate ourselves. Lord, help us even as we prepare to worship each week that we would be serious about it. We would be setting aside the idols that we have in our lives and the sins that so easily beset us. Help us to look unto our Savior who is the finisher of our faith. Praise You for Jesus. And we ask for Your continued mercy on us despite our failures. Thankful that You are faithful. In Jesus' name, Amen.